Wouldn't it be great if more celebrities became Christians? If they did, the church would have much bigger appeal. If we had celebrities on board, we could really attract people to the church. Wouldn't it be great if more wealthy people became Christians? If they did, the church would have the resources to do so much more. We could be way more effective. Have you ever had thoughts like that? Probably we all have. In fact, Christians have had thoughts like that since the earliest days of the church. And in our passage this morning, as we turn back to James, James is going to help us evaluate that kind of thinking. Actually, that's a bit of a polite way to put it. In our passage this morning, James is going to smack us around the head and tell us to wise up if we have those kind of thoughts. So let's read James chapter 2, which in the church Bible is page 1213, or in the larger print Bibles, 1880. James chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 to 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's Word. And in this passage, James points us to the royal law. He calls it the royal law because he's speaking here about the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, things work differently to how they work everywhere else. 
The kingdom of God is where God rules. And in one sense, of course, God rules everywhere all of the time. But much of the world is in rebellion against his rule. So when the Bible speaks about the kingdom of God, it means essentially the people who willingly submit to God's rule. The church of Jesus Christ is where we see the kingdom of God. And where God rules, things are different. In verses 1 to 7, James points to something that doesn't matter in God's kingdom, even though it matters everywhere else. And then in verses 8 to 13, James points to something that does matter in God's kingdom. So first in verses 1 to 7, in God's kingdom, impressive appearances don't matter. Verse 1 says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Literally, it says, they must not receive the face. So James is talking here about a very specific kind of favoritism, the kind of favoritism that makes judgments about people based on their external appearance, their looks, their dress, their skin color, or their poise even, their polished, slick presentation of themselves or their lack of poise and polish. Isn't it true that in the kingdom of this world, those things matter very much? Isn't social media all about external appearances? Isn't it all about how you look and how you present yourself? And not just social media, in general, don't we rise and fall according to how we present ourselves and how we look to others? Of course, the kind of appearance that's considered impressive is going to vary depending on the circles you're in. So if you're a teenage boy, maybe you'll be aiming for a tough appearance. If you're a teenage girl, isn't there pressure to have an attractive appearance? If you're a bit older, maybe it's about appearing competent and capable and qualified for whatever it is you're doing, or appearing prosperous and successful, having the kind of house, the kind of clothes, and the kind of car to show you're a prosperous and successful person. All those things matter in the kingdom of this world. But in God's kingdom, they don't matter. Our glorious Lord Jesus does not receive the face. He doesn't judge people on their external appearance. And that should be hugely liberating for you and me. The Bible tells us the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. Isn't it liberating to know God cares about who we really are, not about the kind of show we put on? So this morning, if you're weighed down and oppressed by this pressure of keeping up appearances, let this truth set you free. 
Your Father in heaven is interested in you. Not some image you try and present of yourself. You don't have to act apart for him. He's interested in the you behind the act. And when that truth sinks in, it is liberating. When it comes to the most important person in the universe, you can drop the performance and deal with him as you are. Because what he's interested in is you as you are. You don't need the right look or the right profile or the right stuff to get his attention. You don't need to give off the right aura or the right vibe for him to turn your way. That is liberating and it also challenges us. Because not only does God look at us that way, he calls us to look at other people that way. Look at the example James gives in verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. It's important to see James is not suggesting here the person with the impressive appearance should be treated badly. That's not his point. His point is their impressive appearance just shouldn't be a factor. They should be treated well, and the person with the unimpressive appearance should be treated equally well. If that is not the case, Jim says, if we treat the two people differently based on their appearance, then we have become judges with evil thoughts. That's strong language. It is evil, James says, to judge one person as worth more than another just because of some external factor like wealth. If we do that, we're essentially saying that one soul is worth more than another. Just because of how that soul is dressed up on the outside. Would we ever treat people that way in this church? Hopefully not. But we might be tempted to. If a well-known celebrity showed up smelling of rich perfume or rich aftershave, and if at the same time a homeless person appeared in the foyer, smelling of something a lot less appealing, wouldn't that really test how much we shared God's view of those two people? Whether we would not give the celebrity less of a welcome but whether we would give the homeless person a welcome equal to the welcome we give the celebrity. James says, failing to treat those people as having equal value would show us to be judges with evil thoughts. 
And here's why in verse 5. My dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Is James saying here that wealthy Christians cannot inherit the kingdom of God? No. Back in chapter 1, he took it for granted there were wealthy people in the church. He spoke about the trial they faced because of their wealth. The challenge it is for them to put their hope in Jesus instead of in their wealth. And so James assumes the kingdom of God is for wealthy people too. But along with the rest of the New Testament, James assumes the majority of Christians will not be wealthy. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, he said not many of them were influential. Not many of them were of noble birth. Some of them were, obviously, but not many. The majority were poor. Slaves, even. And that pattern has continued throughout the history of the church. Today, in global terms, the church is overwhelmingly poor. And maybe that's because, as we noticed a moment ago, the more wealth people have, the less likely they are to place their hope in Jesus instead of in their wealth. But here, James puts it another way. He says God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. In other words, God is choosing to bless the people this world tends to shun. As one writer puts it, this world has given them the lowest of positions. God has given them the highest. Heirs of his kingdom. This world has overlooked them or discarded them. God has showered his grace on them. This world does not treat them with dignity. God has chosen them to inherit his kingdom. Again, this doesn't mean the wealthy are excluded from the kingdom. It means if they inherit the kingdom, their wealth will have nothing at all to do with it. If they inherit the kingdom, it will be because they come to Jesus recognizing that spiritually speaking, they are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's how we all enter God's kingdom. By depending on his grace and mercy and nothing else. And so as a church, as God's people, we better not give the impression that wealth gives anyone a leg up in God's kingdom. We better not give the impression that any externally impressive thing gives a leg up. Whether it's looks or qualifications or career success or whatever else. And James says in the middle of verse 6, consider this. When you're tempted to give special treatment to those who appear impressive, such as the rich, think about this. 
Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? What James seems to be dealing with here is the motivation of those Christians who are giving special attention to the wealthy. Apparently, they thought, these impressive people can benefit us. They can help us advance if we get in with them. Maybe they can help us into the right social circles. If we give them special treatment and special attention, it will help us in the long run. We can join them, maybe, in their high position. Maybe that's what some people in the church were thinking. But James says to them, don't be daft. Don't be silly. Is there any evidence that's really how things work? Doesn't the evidence go the other way? When someone has risen to the top of this world's ladder, do they tend to help those below them? Isn't it more common for them to tread on others? To try and maintain their own high position? And even if they were disposed to help others, James says, don't you know that as a follower of Jesus, you would be the last person they're likely to help? That's what James means when he says, are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Trying to get in with people like that won't do you any good. They are not on your side. That's his point. So in this section, the main point is, God doesn't treat people according to how outwardly impressive they are. So we in the church shouldn't do it either. That's the main point. The secondary point is, if you're tempted to pander to those who are outwardly impressive because you think you're going to gain from it, then think again. And you and I need to hear this. We need to hear it because time and again, the church has made the mistake of trying to suck up to powerful people, thinking those powerful people will help them, only to find that being sucked up to by church means nothing to those people. Just as an example, in the last few years, how many churches have been falling over themselves to please the LGBTQ plus lobby? And in our society at the moment, that group is about as politically powerful as it gets. It's a political juggernaut advancing its agenda all the time in our society. And I've seen, seen leaflets from churches proclaiming their full support for the LGBTQ plus agenda. And no doubt that's in hope that they'll get some praise and approval from that quarter. That the church will get some standing and credibility because of the concessions they're making. But has that pandering actually got churches anywhere? Has it made them any new friends in that powerful lobby? No. 
no matter how much ground churches concede, it will never, ever be enough. We can never make friends there. They will never be satisfied until the church no longer exists. And just to clarify on this, the church is most certainly for all kinds of people from all sorts of backgrounds and inclinations and orientations. The good news is that Jesus died for every kind of sinner. He didn't die for just some kinds of sinner. And we will get to that in verses 8 to 13. The good news about Jesus is certainly for members of the LGBTQ plus community. What we're talking about here is the mistake of trying to cater to the political agenda of that community, thinking it will help the church. The Bible says, don't be daft. In the context James is writing to, catering to the rich did not stop them exploiting the church, dragging Christians into court and blaspheming the name of Christ. And in our context, catering to the LGBTQ plus agenda will not stop them exploiting the church, dragging Christians into court and blaspheming the name of Christ. Pandering to the powerful is wrong because that's not how things work in God's kingdom. And it's a dead end. It won't even win you the credibility in society that you're longing for. So that's what doesn't matter in God's kingdom. Impressive appearances don't matter. But now in verses 8 to 13, we get to something that does matter. In God's kingdom, loving your neighbor matters. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Now, I don't think that James means this one command by itself constitutes all of the royal law. The royal law is the law of God's kingdom. And on this particular issue, the royal law says, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus made it clear our neighbor is anyone God puts in our pathway. Not just the person who lives next door to us. Of all the stories Jesus told, the good Samaritan has got to be up there as a candidate for the most famous of his parables. We find it in Luke chapter 10, if you want to read it later today. Jesus told the story there because... When he quoted this same Old Testament verse, love your neighbor as yourself, someone in the crowd asked him, well, who is my neighbor? Who is it I'm supposed to love? And in response to that question, Jesus told the story of a Jewish man who was attacked by robbers and left for dead lying in the road. Jesus said, into that situation, a priest walked by, he looked at the man and he decided that this badly beaten man was not his concern. He walked on. Then a Levite came 
And he decided the same thing. He also walked on. It wasn't his problem. Finally, a Samaritan came along, and if anyone had an excuse for deciding the man lying on the road was not his concern, it was the Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans were enemies. But the Samaritan was the one who realized this abused man qualified as his neighbor. The man was in his pathway. So it was his duty to help him. Even though this man on the road was his enemy, even though he was going to need significant help, even though it was a big inconvenience to give that help, and a big expense as well, as we learn in the story. Despite all of that, all of those potential excuses he had, the Samaritan knew this situation was the kind of situation God was talking about when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the Samaritan helped. And there was no prospect of him getting anything in return for helping this naked, beaten man in the road. The Samaritan helped because God had put that naked, beaten man in his pathway. And that made him the Samaritan's neighbor. And that same understanding is in place here when James says, love your neighbor as yourself. When someone is in your path, when your life comes into contact with theirs, whether it's because they walk into church or you meet them in some other context, you show care and concern for them. Not because they look impressive, not because they have impressive standing in the community, or because they might be able to help you climb society's ladder. No, you show care and concern for them because they're right there in front of you, in need. You show care and concern no matter what they look like, smell like, or talk like. No matter if they're from your kind of background or your social class or your particular tribe. No matter if they have the same skin color as you or the same first language as you, you care for them because they're your neighbor. That's how things work in God's kingdom. That's how they must work in the church. We love people who appear in our pathway. Whether they're wearing Gucci or filthy rags. Whether or not we can even understand a word they say. Whether or not they look like our kind of people. What if we don't do that? Look at verse 9. But if you show favoritism, remember literally that's if you receive the face, if you judge people based on their external appearance, then you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James says, let's not kid ourselves. Let's not gloss over this. If we show favoritism and therefore fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, it is not a minor thing. It makes us lawbreakers. And in other contexts, speaking to non-Christians, the New Testament would go on to say, that makes you guilty in God's sight. It makes you in need of his forgiveness. But here, James is speaking to Christians. He's writing to men and women who have received God's forgiveness through faith in Christ. And when James says these things about law-breaking to them, to Christians, his point is you cannot pick and choose where and when to obey your God. John Calvin said, God will not be given obedience with exceptions attached. As God's people, we can't say, I'll obey the command that tells me not to commit adultery, but I'm going to ignore the one telling me not to murder. We can't say, I'll obey the command that tells me to honor my parents, but I'm going to ignore the command that tells me to honor that smelly, awkward person just as much as I honor that other well-dressed, well-connected person. We can't do that. God will not be given obedience with exceptions attached. Thank God that in Christ our sins are forgiven. But let's not think that is a license to pick and choose how much we obey God's commands. In fact, verse 12, as God's people, we must speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What James is saying is that those who have truly received God's mercy in Christ will become merciful people themselves. Because God's mercy changes us. And that change shows itself in the way we treat others. And so if our lives do not show evidence of mercy toward others, if we only favor those who look like they deserve our favor, like the wealthy, the well-groomed, and the well-connected, If we only show love in those kind of directions, then sooner or later the question has to be asked, have we truly experienced God's mercy ourselves? If we're not people who show mercy, we may be giving evidence that we've not accepted God's mercy ourselves. And that we are in fact headed for God's judgment. On the other hand, James says, if we are people who show mercy, that mercy will triumph over the final judgment. How? 
Because the mercy we show shows we have been changed by God's mercy to us in Christ. The mercy we show is evidence we've been born again by the word of truth about Jesus. That life-changing word has truly been planted in us and it is bearing fruit in us. So what about the questions we started with? Wouldn't it be great if more celebrities became Christians? Sure it would. But no more so than when unknown people become Christians. Wouldn't it be great if more wealthy people became Christians? Sure it would. But no more so than when poor people become Christians. It's great when outwardly impressive people become Christians but not because they matter more than other people. It's great because outwardly impressive people are lost without Jesus. So when they enter the kingdom of God, that is cause for celebration. Just as there is when a homeless person enters the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, impressive appearances don't matter. So let's be people, let's be a church that takes that truth to heart. Let's be a church that lives it out as we love our neighbor, whether they're rich or poor, well-known or unknown. If they're brothers and sisters in Christ, let's love them equally as he does. And if our neighbors are outside of God's kingdom at the moment, whether they're high or low on society's ladder, let's be equally ready to share the good news with them. Because everyone outside the kingdom is equally lost. Our last songs remind us that Jesus is our only hope. No matter how impressive we might appear to be, what matters for all of us, is Christ in us. And what's true of us is true of everyone else as well. So let's respond to God's word together in song.
Father, you have poured out so much mercy and love on us in Jesus. You've promised us an eternity of your mercy and love in Jesus. And now, as we leave this place, will you help us to go and show something of that love and mercy to others, whoever you put in our path. And now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.